The University of Central Missouri is an institution like no other. From its roots as a progressive teacher's college founded after one of the most tragic periods in our nation's history to today, where it is an internationally recognized university with over 12,000 students studying over 100 majors. In a world that is ever-changing, the University of Central Missouri has produced the students who change it. The University of Central Missouri provides students from across the globe, not just an education, but a sense of community service and purpose. Join us as we explore that journey through the tragedies of war, the triumphs of peace, and the ultimate goal of education for service. This is the history of the University of Central Missouri. eighteen seventy the united states just coming out of its darkest period ever the civil war was trying to come to grips with a reunification and how to prevent an event such as this from ever taking place again in missouri education was a focus of that thought process unfortunately at that time public schools were thought to give a poor education to underprivileged children as they were taught by so-called hacks. To reform this system, the Missouri legislature, with support of the Missouri State Teachers Association, created the Normal School Act. Dr. John Taylor, professor of history, UCM. There was a lot going on in terms of education uh, at the time in, this, in, in the state of Missouri, but also uh, nationally. And so the kind of the beginnings of the normal school kind of starts on the East Coast, probably, probably in the 1830s in Massachusetts. And then of course, uh, the country goes through the Civil War and then uh, Missouri is a part of the, the Civil War, obviously, very contested uh, time. And so after the war, uh, the, the country, including Missouri, has to put itself back together again. And so in the State House in Missouri, uh, you had radical reconstruction taking place. Even though Missouri was not seen as a state that had seceded from the Union, its radical reconstruction took place within the Statehouse, not coming out of uh, Washington, D.C. One of the key components of radical Republicans, uh, their, their initiatives that they uh, went through across uh, the country, was public education. This act led to the creation of two normal school districts in the state. The first was located at the existing school in Kirksville, and a second one to be named by the newly created Normal School Board of Regents. Bids were sought for communities interested in hosting the newest normal school, with the winning bid of $75,000 awarded to the town of Sedalia. However, that town would not ultimately be the school's final home. Bruce Euler, UCM graduate and Johnson County, Missouri historian. Warrensburg, back in the late 1860s, 1870s, was a frontier town. It was a wild town. In fact, I have a great quote that said in the late 1860s, Warrensburg was unfit for human habitation because of all the, the horse thieves and the rustlers and the, and the jayhawkers and redlegs and the leftover of the Union and the Confederate armies and 
And then you had Quantrell's Raiders were still around here, and they were all trying to make a living at this point, and they basically did it by stealing and, and, and stealing horses, robbing people. And it wasn't uncommon for them to ride up to a house out in the country and just shoot the residents and steal what they could. So Warrensburg was a very rough place, um, not sophisticated at all, but we had visionaries. So we had a couple of visionaries here in town at that time to say, we need something. We need to put in a college or even a university, as they call it at that time, into Warrensburg. And so they started this application to see if Warrensburg could you know, get one of the normal schools. And that's why we became Warrensburg um, number two in the state of Missouri for normal schools. Ashley McGuffey, author, University of Central Missouri, 150 years of education for service. The founding was a really chaotic time, so in 1870, Missouri had passed the Normal School Act, which would set up another normal school for teachers, um, and they set up a bidding system to see who would actually get it, and Sedalia initially won with a $75,000 bid. But then seemingly overnight, Warrensburg managed to get like 150000 in cash and then a hundred or in county bonds and then a hundred and ten thousand in um, like private donations with the um, addition of a campus and the Missouri General Assembly was like wow that's a lot of money how did you do that overnight so Warrensburg was put under investigation and the school was originally given to Sedalia with its original bid but then in April, Warrensburg was cleared of any suspicious activity and the decision was reversed and the normal school went to Warrensburg over Sedalia. Um, I don't know what backroom maneuvering happened at that time to get the, the re-vote, but anyway, we won it and the university was founded here in 1871. And ironically, that was just one year after the old drum trial, which is a famous part of Warrensburg. And the old drum trial, of course, was about how we now use uh, so frequently man's best friend as the dog, and that occurred just up on Main Street in the old courthouse. The community of Warrensburg found out that they indeed had been selected uh, as a site. Uh, and the, the community kind of went wild. I mean, they, the bells and the church bells rang, and, and I think this kind of started in the evening and then kind of moved over into the, into the next day. The Normal School Board of Regents appointed George Petrie Beard as the first principal. Without time to construct a school building, Principal Beard's first act was to find a place to hold classes. The Foster School, Warrensburg's public school, offered the use of space which Principal Beard graciously accepted. The first classes were held on the second floor of the Warrensburg Public High School, which was at Grover and McGuire Street. And so that's where the first classes were held. E.A. Engel and Lucy J. Maltby were hired as the first teachers who, along with Principal Beard, provided advanced courses in science, literature, and education. And so the, the first kind of president, you know, assembled his team, and a lot of the teachers were from uh, these normal schools. Uh, that had already been established in the East or in the Midwest. And so they were brought in to essentially lead the, um, lead the educational, um, educational leaders and to teach the students. Now the students 
Uh, it was primarily a teaching school. Uh, even, even at the founding, it was for teachers, to train teachers to go out and to teach in the public school system, this new public school system uh, that had essentially come out of the, the Civil War. And so that was its main purpose and its main focus was always uh, on that. And so with that, there's a predominant number of women who are students at the institution. And this, uh, having women and, ha and their ability to gain this education at a normal school was relatively progressive for this early period. And it allowed women to take classes which uh, they probably wouldn't be able to take on any other place and allowed them a certain amount of freedom uh, in their instruction to be able to pursue different disciplines. And so that was an important component uh, as a part of you know, who is coming here. And because of that, you do have a number of uh, women instructors who are also hired and who teach uh, during this, uh, during the whole kind of early part of the founding uh, and even beyond. Uh, so the teaching aspect, the teaching school is, is very, very important and critical to understanding the, the founding of, of uh, what became known as normal number two. Now prepared with a mandate, a classroom and faculty, the second Missouri Normal School was ready to receive its first students. On May the 10th, 1871, Warrensburg Normal School opened with an enrollment of 30 students. The Normal School opened in, in, in a building um, by the, owned by the, the, the school system. And so that was a start. I think about 40 students attended. And then from there, uh, the community uh, began to, to actually try to build uh, the actual structure uh, for the for the for the normal school and that took a little while and that actually uh, the cornerstone laying was in August of 1871 and that was a massive event for the community and I think to me um, is kind of a founding kind of a focal point is that August dedication uh, of the cornerstone laying the Masons oversaw the laying of the cornerstone. Uh, you had all kinds of politicians come in. Uh, the event was covered by the St. Louis newspapers, uh, obviously by the Warrensburg newspapers. And so these incredible addresses uh, were, were delivered uh, and talking about the opportunity that having this normal school uh, would, would bring to the community. Old Main was Warren, or was the normal school's very first building. It was made from local quarried limestone and sandstone, as well as locally made bricks. It was made in the Lombard Venetian style, and it took about 10 years to actually complete the building itself. Uh, we got, or Warrensburg got the first floor done within the first year that it started being built, but then due to lack of funds, uh, it took another like eight years to actually get it finished. And it, that was only because the president at the time convinced his staff to take a pay cut so they could actually finish it. Dr. Amber Clifford Napoleon, 
Director, McClure Archives and University Museum, University of Central Missouri. So the first building on campus is Old Main. Um, it's similar to where the administration building is now. Uh, they started building it when the school was awarded. So they began building it in 1871. It opened in 1872, officially. Uh, it was a Gothic style architecture structure and it housed everything. Uh, the president's offices, classrooms, labs, the lab school, everything was in one building at that time. The school was considered a success. However, the board was not happy with Principal Beard and voted to replace him with James Johannet, whose title was changed to president, making him the first president of the school, a title which has been bestowed on every head of the institution since. The Board of Regents disliked President Beard because he was very vocal in his support of uh, President Grant at the time. And the Board of Regents felt that as the principal of the normal school, he shouldn't be as vocal and as political as he was, um, plus the fact that he was originally from a northern state, it just didn't jive well with small town Missouri values, and so he was let go because of that. By 1875, the explosion growth of the Missouri normal education system had led to the creation of a third normal district, and with it, the creation of a separate board of regents for each school. This was the year of the first graduating class from the Warrensburg Normal School, which bestowed honors on eight students who had completed the four-year scientific course. This occasion, while happy, was also bittersweet. The Board of Regents dismissed President Johannet due to the community's dissatisfaction with his teaching of natural sciences and his northern ways. So President John and I served for three years as president. And he was um, uh, from the north, uh, kind of a northerner, but that wasn't necessarily out of the ordinary. And he had other uh, individuals that had served under him that he recruited uh, that were also uh, had training from the normal school. And so I think he wanted to, part of his concern, I think, was uh, the issue of just the standing of the normal schools in comparison to uh, the university in Columbia. And he wanted to make sure that the normal schools would provide a very kind of similar kind of education. And so he was very much an individual who encouraged obviously the practical, but the scholarly. And he, I think he got along fairly well with the community, although uh, some probably might say that, um, you know, he, he wanted to focus on the education, he wanted to focus on the training, and uh, it, it often always didn't uh, go along necessarily with kind of the strong religious background of the community. Uh, he thought students need to be exposed to um, all kinds of training and thinking. And sometimes that did not always kind of sit well with um, the local kind of community, the local church community. And there apparently was some kind of disagreements. They were concerned as a uh, concerned that he didn't attend, uh, you know, a local uh, church. 
uh, while he was here. And uh, that kind of, kind of got some in the community kind of concerned about him, concerned about the instruction. And so um, his tenure was essentially kind of uh, cut short, uh, probably due to some of those, those factors. Another northerner and superintendent of the Louisiana-Missouri Public Schools, George L. Osborne, was appointed as the newest president of the institution. Originally reluctant to take the daunting task of being the third president in five years, his passion and determination to make the school a success proved unwaverable. President Osborne approached the position with tact and delicacy in an effort to make judgments that would not only satiate the residents of Warrensburg, but benefit the institution as a whole. These traits led to him being affectionately nicknamed King George by his students. President Osborne was affectionately known as King George. He was a very tall man, very imposing figure, and he was so well beloved. He always looks incredibly stern in his photos, but he really was beloved. He kept the natural sciences in the school curriculum, but was far more diplomatic towards the greater Warnsburg community. Uh, and so he was able to keep them without further antagonizing anybody, uh, the board included. So he was able to stay on until he got very sick. And he was here close to 30 years. President Osborne assembled his own team of teachers, much like the previous presidents had done. Uh, and again, very similarly, they came from normal schools, which usually their training was either on the east or in the Midwest. Uh, so they were um, kind of northern uh, in, their, in their influence. Uh, but as I said, I think Osborne had a little bit different tone uh, in terms of the, we didn't hear the religious concerns being raised about him as you had uh, with John and Ott, and seemed to be relatively successful in his uh, uh, tenure. Early in his time at the institution, the survival of normal schools seemed in doubt. The state legislature disliked funding them, and the public did not see the value in specialized training for what they deemed an easy profession. The first budget cuts came around because while everybody had originally been enthusiastic about normal schools, uh, the state then got a little iffy about them and was like, well, they're not actual colleges, but they're you know, not just high schools, so do we really need them? And then teaching just seems so easy, so do we really need to put money into better teaching uh, schools? Um, so the first budget cuts were really detrimental to normal schools around the state, and Osborne managed to rally that by uh, simply pouring out this continuous stream of very well-taught, you know, teachers. And so that really started benefiting benefiting the state of Missouri and the greater United States if, like, they left the state and whatnot. But uh, the the alumni of the or of the normal school is really what kind of helped keep the normal schools going is just we finally had really well-taught teachers and that was benefiting their students. You know, at one point I, I read uh, that I think the entire appropriation was $7,500. And uh, at that point you had two other normal schools and so they're kind of competing as well for money. 
I think that's probably a concern maybe that uh, hadn't been fully kind of fleshed out that you have some other normal state normal schools being established. So they're competing now for kind of scarce dollars. But in the, for the most part, I mean, the local communities, you know, supported these institutions. I mean, $7,500 was not going to go that far in terms of, um, you know, building structures that they were not, you know, that was just kind of to keep the lights on and the staff, uh, faculty kind of uh, compensated. Um, and so they worked with the local communities, I think, to be able to, you know, move forward. And I think, again, that's this is a, during a period where they're not able to finish Old Main. You know, that still is an issue that's on the table here. Um, because they're not getting the, you know, really large appropriations to be able to do that. Um, so they're constantly having, I think, to uh, rely upon the, the local communities in various kinds of ways, maybe uh, for, for support. In his nearly 25-year tenure, President Osborne oversaw impressive growth of the institution, including the introduction of philosophy, and science programs, the addition of postgraduate programs, and the creation of the first sports clubs setting the stage for future collegiate athletic programs. A significant example of the school's expansion came in 1878 with the publication of its first student newspaper, The Normal Courier. Further expansion also extended to campus and the addition of four acres to the west of Old Main. As the campus and the student body grew, so did extracurricular organizations, such as literary clubs and the beginning of Greek organizations. My favorite story about him, he fought tirelessly for, uh, to, get use, to get the normal school recognized as an actual college. Um, but my favorite story about him is actually, he really loved trees, like really loved trees. He was very much into the nature movement. But his tenure as, pre as president also corresponded with our first football team. And our first football team managed to convince him to let them cut down a couple of his beloved trees to create a football field, but they decided that it wasn't actually enough room. So while he was gone at a conference, they cut down more trees than had been originally sanctioned. And he came back in the middle of them doing that. And so they tried to they tried to apologize and they said that they would stop and he was like, no, keep going. Those blisters from you know all that ax swinging will serve as a good reminder. As the 19th century waned, so did the health of President Osborne, increasingly bedridden over the last year of his life. President Osborne passed away in 1898. Succeeding him was his loyal vice president and friend, George Henry Howe. Hired by President Osborne in 1887 to teach mathematics, George Howe was no stranger to the institution. After he served a year as the interim president, the Board of Regents elected him as the fourth president in 1899. Steering the school towards four-year accreditation. President Howe was not here for very long. His heart lay in teaching. 
He was President Osborne's successor, and he really kind of took over when President Osborne started getting sick towards the end of his tenure. And so when President Osborne left to take care of himself, and then he ultimately passed away, uh, the Board of Regents at the time was very supportive of Howe becoming the next president. And he stayed on for about two years, and he fought the good fight, like he fought presidents, President Osborne's fight to keep the school open, but ultimately he preferred teaching math, and so he left to go teach again. President Howe departed the school in 1901, ushering in a period of short-tenured school presidents, which beyond himself included Edwin B. Craighead and James Ament. While their tenures were short, their accomplishments were not inconsequential, as this time saw the construction of the Dockery Gym, the first published yearbook, The Raider, and the first alma mater. In 1906, William J. Hawkins was elected the seventh president of the school. Immensely popular with the students and faculty, President Hawkins gained a reputation of standing firmly behind his teachers. When Hawkins came and was president, his, his presidency corresponded with a, a lot of wonderful hires, and that really did help the school uh, expand into more programs, actual colleges becoming a thing later, uh, you know, better student organizations such as like the, uh, the Modern Languages Club and stuff like that. Um, and so like these hires really did help lead their program. Martin led the English program to be, be to becoming the great program that it was. Um, like the training school under Humphreys became more well known. And at the time it was the best equipped training school west of the Mississippi. Uh, so his his tenure as president and the and the faculty that he hired really helped bring the school into kind of a golden age. But President Hawkins was the one who I think understood what the change in the state law meant with the development of their certificates. But he was also, again, pushing the same theme that these other presidents had focused on prior to him, is that we wanna have a robust education uh, that can in many ways be very similar and uh, to the university education in Columbia. And so this was, again, they were still, these presidents were still under that kind of microscope. And like I said, when you think about it, you know, you're competing for funding uh, with all of the other colleges. And so you want to make a case that, you know, our education here is going to be very similar or, or equivalent to University of Missouri at Columbia. And even though you may not have a lab school, uh, that is something that we really need to have because our goal and our mission was teacher education and training. And I think these presidents were up against the fact that it was seen as somehow less than a, a, an education that you might get at the University of Columbia. And so they are constantly talking about you know, these disciplines, uh, whether or not they be history or Latin or, you know, they are covering, they are offering these classes. And, and because they believe that is an important kind of foundation for some of the teaching that is going on. And so that's, as I said, that's an important kind of 
underneath or really over the top, I would say, an argument that these presidents are having to make uh, that you need to fund us. These teachers need this um, training to undergird them uh, in the classroom so that they can be successful teachers. I just keep repeating that, but it's a constant theme that just is every one of them are running up against. And they go out and they give speeches and they um, talk about the challenges with this. This was a time of great transition for the school. The training school, which was considered to be one of the best equipped in the West, if not the nation, had grown so much that it was moved to its own building constructed in 1909. The training school was really important to the normal school education. The normal school was very much focused on a kind of hands-on uh, teaching and learning. And so if you're, you were going to be a school that focused on training teachers, then you essentially needed to have a, a training school to be able to practice that, uh, that skill. And this is something that I had not fully realized, but it was kind of, uh, it differed from, the normal school training differed from the training, for example, like at the University of Missouri. It was not a normal school and it didn't have a training school with it. And so this whole idea of what a normal school should teach and do really becomes kind of a, a bone of contention uh, in the state. And that has an impact on how the funds are appropriated uh, in Jefferson City. Do we fund you know, the university school in Columbia? And what about these normal schools over here? Uh, they're training public teachers. And so uh, this became a, a really important component of the discussion about what a, um, what a higher education should contain and, you know, should it have the hands-on? And was it seen as kind of lesser than the training at the, at the university in Columbia? So it allowed the, the students obviously to practice their uh, training and teaching. And I think that was a part of it. But I think one of the things that, uh, I quickly realized that was important was that they also had summer training. And that the summer school was a big deal. And if you think about it, you know, when would teachers have the ability to take classes? It's during the summer. And so you have the actual kind of training school, but then these summer schools, uh, which, uh, would attract students were also some of the highest enrolled classes. And uh, I think that has to do with when uh, some of these individuals were, were able to, to take courses and to further their, uh, their, their knowledge. The first Bachelor's of Science degree in education was awarded in 1914. And in 1912, the school became a charter member of the Missouri Intercollegiate Athletics Association. Warrensburg was part of the precursor to the MIAA, but that had almost every single school in Missouri in it, and it was just huge. It was, people weren't able to play everybody in it um, during the seasons, and so it really was just too big for its own thing. 
And we actually got kicked out of that because um, our football coach at the time had been an alumni or he was an alumni of the school. And so he didn't see a reason why he couldn't keep playing with his now you know, students that he was coaching. And so he kept playing and we actually ha almost had a fight on the field with Missouri or with the University of Missouri of all places um, because you know they they had they had the argument of your coach shouldn't be playing and uh, coach Ferguson that was his name he you know argued that well he had been a player himself so and he really loved the sport so why couldn't he so there was almost a fight on the field and, and Warrensburg got kicked out of the precursor and so uh, when the precursor itself just kind of fell apart eventually on its own because it was just too big, uh, we, or Warrensburg, helped found the, the, the MIAA on our own. Jerry Hughes, Vice President, Intercollegiate Athletics, University of Central Missouri. The MIAA started in 1912, and the only two left of charter members are Central Missouri and Northwest Missouri were the two schools that were charter members that are left. But in those early days, you know, Central Missouri was very, very successful. Uh, Fall Gallon was the head football coach and was the head basketball coach and won numerous, during the teens, won numerous uh, conference championships, both in football and in basketball. Uh, he left the university. Besides being a coach, he was a chiropractor. And the board at that time would not let him practice chiropractic medicine. So it was really over about $25 is why he left the university and went to Kansas University. And of course, we know the rest is history. His name is on Allen Fieldhouse. But he was very successful here. With triumph, there's tragedy. On Saturday, March 6, 1915, a late winter storm had blanketed the campus with six inches of snow. The spring term was set to begin the following Monday, and for the night caretaker, the evening passed slowly until early that morning when he gazed across campus and discovered that, to his horror, Old Main was on fire. The fire in Old Main really wasn't a surprise to anybody when it actually happened. Uh, fears of the fires went back to the 1890s with President Osborne. The, the walls and the ceiling were never actually insulated. Um, and on top of that, when they were uh, adding on the new buildings, they were adding on new infrastructure, especially electricity. And so they, they weren't updating Old Main's infrastructure when they were adding on the new infrastructure. So that really wasn't a good thing either. And um, the night janitor would say how when the boiler would kick on in Old Main, it would cause sparks to fly. And so it's honestly a surprise that there wasn't a fire until 1915 if the fire fears themselves were going back to the 1890s. Um, it was a very, very quiet Saturday morning when the fire started. The night janitor looked out from the powerhouse that uh, his office was in and there were sparks flying in there were flames and sparks going in Old Main, and he quickly raised the alarm, but because we'd had, or because Warrensburg had had a snowstorm the previous, like, entire week almost, the snow was really deep, and so there really wasn't good response to it, and the nearest hydrants were frozen, 
What I know about the fire, I wasn't around at that time, but that was 1915, uh, was that a fire started in the old main building. The caretaker of the building just happened not to be in the building that night. It was a few hundred yards, I think, west, maybe over the physical plant or somewhere, and noticed flames or smoke coming out of the building. But of course, during that time, most buildings were built out of uh, wood, or at least all the structure was. And so that's what happened was once that fire started in Old Main, and it's a beautiful building. I mean, you can see pictures of it, quite a few pictures now on the internet of the Old Main building. But it also connected with the training school and there was an assembly hall that was quite gorgeous back there. And again, once they started, it went through all the buildings and we lost all the student records too. It had been there since 1871 or when we founded, so we lost that. But the amazing thing was that the campus came back so quick that they were able to raise so much money so fast to say it was so important that classes never were disrupted. Old Main, the science annex, the library, and the training school all burned, leaving only charred skeletons of the once proud buildings. Lost with the buildings were academic records, 40,000 books, the museum, and all furnishings and equipment. What remained of the campus were the Dockery Gym, the Fine Arts Building, the Powerhouse, and the enduring spirit of the faculty and students. Warrensburg residents saved uh, pianos, they saved um, just a number of things by complete happenstance, and then um, the best thing that was probably saved, because all the student records were lost, all the library books were lost. Um, the best thing that was saved, though, was all of the Board of Regents uh, notes and whatnot going back to the founding of the school simply because they'd been put in a semi-fire-resistant safe. And so while they still have smoke damage and you can really smell it on them, they are still in existence, so. Facing what appeared to be insurmountable odds, President Hawkins rallied the faculty and the spring term began the following Monday as scheduled. Classes were held in borrowed rooms, churches, faculty homes, and the Warrensburg Public Schools. Dockery Gym was transformed into a library, chapel, and offices. What could be salvaged was, and the school continued its mission of education for service. I think one of the things about the fire, which I find interesting, is how the community came together in terms of um, trying to address the challenges. And um, they were significant. You know, I mean, their, their whole standing as an institution was essentially, you know, wiped out. And then I'm just thinking in terms of putting myself in the shoes of the president at the time. And I think Hawkins had worked so hard, I think, to try to work on that standing, hiring new faculty, and, um, you know, trying to move the institution forward. And then this hits, and um, I, I mean, it had it was had it been a significant blow, and almost immediately, you know, I think I think the board holds a meeting at six a.m. I don't think the board has probably held a six a.m. meeting, maybe, but uh, in this case, it was at six o'clock 
<laughs> the same, essentially, I guess, the same day, you know, of the fire to try to figure out how to move forward. The president immediately goes to Jefferson City and he's trying to figure out, you know, we got to find secure money to try to move the institution back to where it was. And there seemed to be significant support. The state legislature appropriated money, pulled funds from different places. And I think that probably, that had to have been a credit to what had gone on previously. At least the state legislature thought enough of the leadership uh, because that was not easy. I mean, they were pulling money from <laughs> accounts that were not really, you know, set aside for you know, normal instruction to be able to to immediately re rebuild. The aftermath of the fire really showed the school and Warrensburg's resiliency. Uh, what happened was the, um, it ha the fire had happened on a Saturday morning. The spring semester was supposed to start that following Monday. And so what President Hawkins and his faculty did was they were just uh, going around town asking if they can borrow rooms in churches or uh, like uh, businesses, uh, faculty were housed, house, faculty was housing classes in their own homes. Um, we borrowed some, Warrensburg borrowed, uh, Warrensburg allowed Hawkins to borrow some rooms in the school district buildings as well. And so really it was just this great uh, combined effort between Warrensburg and the school to get everything opened back up on Monday. And, and they were, they were very successful. Spring semester did start when it was supposed to. Uh, there was even a basketball game the next night at Dockery Gym. I've seen a, a ticket for it to say that, hey, the game's still on for tomorrow night. And this is the day after the whole campus burns down. And then if you notice on the north side of the campus there on, on what's called South Street, there's two columns. And on one of those columns, it says it has an engraving that engraving, says 1915. And that was to honor the fact that the campus was rebuilt in 1915. Out of the darkness came a renaissance for the school, but President Hawkins was not able to see it to completion. Only 23 days after the fire, the Board of Regents ended his tenure at the institution. Replacing Hawkins would be Eldo Hendricks. President Hawkins was incredibly popular and he seemed like he should have continued on with his tenure as presidency, especially after getting the, uh, the school back on track when it was supposed to. However, politics played into that and uh, the new governor of Missouri was not a fan of normal schools at all. And so, Hawkins was a very big proponent of normal schools. Of course, you know, he was the president of one. And, uh, but not only that, he had a lot of sway. Um, and especially after this, like he got the school back on track, he would have had an enormous amount of power after that. And so the board of governor, the governor put a lot of pressure on the board of governors to let him go because he didn't want, he didn't want Hawkins' competition when he was trying to get rid of normal schools. And I think that's an important kind of component in the community. Uh, obviously reached out, you know, we, we know about uh, hosting the classes in the churches and uh, the tents that 
apparently were erected for some classes. And so, um, and that wouldn't have happened, I think, if, you know, the president didn't have a certain amount of standing with uh, the community, with the state legislature. And then, you know, he's practically dis dismissed within several weeks after the fire, apparently in some sort of uh, political trade-off with the governor who was going to try to appoint one of his uh, cronies. Uh, and the community I, responded. They, they, didn't, they didn't think that was the, the best thing uh, to do. Um, but they were apparently, um, the, the governor did not get his appointed crony uh, as president, um, but a historian, President Hendricks, was uh, selected and he becomes president and then kind of oversees this uh, tr transition uh, in the institution. Uh, and it had to have been, and there was from what I've read, there's been, um, you know, for a time, the both uh, the presidents, the, the former president and then President Hendricks did work together to kind of smooth the transition uh, on a few things. And so uh, it had to have been just an incredibly difficult time, the fire, and now you're having a transition in leadership, which you really didn't expect and didn't seem warranted. And yet uh, they, were, they were able to move forward. And as I said, you know, I think the reason obviously moving forward is the fact that the state legislature appropriated the funds. Had they not appropriated the funds, I don't know. I don't see how it could have rebuilt. And um, so they saw something there that said, you know, this is worth our investment. And not only that, as, as I mentioned, it was worth pulling funds from other uh, essentially pots of money to be able to rebuild. Hendricks came to Missouri from Indiana to head Normal Number no. 2's history department. Upon his election as the eighth president, he demanded a multi-year contract to ensure that he did not suffer the same fate of some of his predecessors. President Hendricks unfortunately inherited a skeletal campus but he did his best to rally the school and the surrounding community. And because of that, we got, or the campus got several new buildings just within the first year since the fire. So the administration building that stands now, um, part of Humphreys and, or the part of the Humphreys building now used to be two buildings and so those two buildings were also built and they were the new training school and the science building. It was at this time that the school was admitted to the North Central Association of Colleges and Schools as an unclassified college still short of four-year recognition. It appeared that achieving that goal was closer than ever. In the shadow of the greatest test the campus ever faced, the Great Fire, Another test was looming over the entire nation, a test that would become the Great War. 